You're listening to The Tales of War, the final campaign, Marines in the victory on Okinawa. Closing the Loop The retreating Japanese troops did not escape scot-free from their Shuri defenses. Naval spotter planes located one southbound column and called in devastating fire from a half dozen ships and every available attack aircraft. In short, Order several miles of the muddy road was strewn with wrecked trucks, field guns, and corpses. General Delval congratulated the Tactical Air Force. Thanks for prompt response this afternoon when the nips were caught on road with kimonos down. Successful interdictions, however, remained the exception. Most of Kushijima's 32nd Army survived the retreat to its final positions in the Kiyamu Peninsula. The 10th Army missed a golden opportunity to end the battle four weeks early, but the force, already slowed by heavy rains and deep mud, was simply too ponderous to respond with alacrity. The infantry slogged southward, cussing the weather but glad to be beyond the Shuri line. Yet every advance exacted a price. A Japanese sniper killed Lieutenant Colonel Horatio C. Woodhouse, Jr the competent commander of 2x22, as he led his battalion towards the Kokuba estuary. General Shepard, grieving privately at the loss of his younger cousin, replaced him in command with the battalion exec, Lieutenant Colonel John G. Johnson. As the three AC troops advanced further south, the Marines began to encounter a series of east-west ridges dominating the open farmlands in their midst. The southern part of Okinawa, reported Colonel Snedker, consists primarily of cross ridges sticking out like bones from the spine of a fish. Meanwhile, the army divisions of 24 Corps warily approached two towering encampments in their zone, Yuza Dake and Yeju Dake. The Japanese had obviously gone to ground along these ridges and peaks and lay waiting for the American advance. Rain and mud continued to plague the combatants. One survivor of this segment of the campaign described the battlefields as a five-mile area of mud. As Private First Class Sledge recorded in the margins of his sodden New Testament, mud in camp on Pavuvu was a nuisance, but mud on the battlefield is misery beyond description. The 96th Division warily reported the results of one day's efforts under those conditions. Those on forward slope slid down and those on reverse slope slid back, otherwise no change. The Marines began to chaff at the heavy-handed controls of the 10th Army, which seemed to stall with each encounter with a fresh Japanese outpost. General Buckner favoured a massive application of firepower on every obstacle before committing troops in the open. Colonel Shapley, commanding the 4th Marines, took a different view. I am not too sure that sometimes when they Whittle you away, 10 to 12 men a day, then maybe it would be better to take 100 losses a day if you could get out sooner. Colonel Wilbert S. Bigfoot Brown, a veteran artilleryman commanding the 11th Marines and a legend in his own time, believed the 10th Army relied too heavily on firepower. We poured a tremendous amount of metal into those positions, he said. It seemed nothing could be living in that churning mass where the shells were falling and roaring. But when we next advanced, the Japs would still be there and madder than ever. Brown also lamented the overuse of star shells for night illumination. I felt like we were the children of Israel in the wilderness. 
living under a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day. Such a heavy reliance on artillery support stressed the amphibious supply system. The 10th Army's demand for heavy ordnance grew to 3,000 tons of ammo per day. Each round had to be delivered over the beach and distributed along the front. This factor reduced the availability of other supplies, including rations. Frontline troops, especially the Marines, began to go hungry. Again, partial succor came from the friendly skies. Marine pilots flying General Motors Avenger torpedo bombers of VMTB-232 executed 88 drops of rations during the first three days of June alone. This worked well, thanks to the intrepid pilots and thanks to the rigging skills of the air delivery section, veterans of the former Marine Parachute Battalions. Offshore from the final drive south, the ships of the fleet continued to withstand waves of kamikaze attacks. <clears throat> Earlier, on 17th May, Admiral Turner had declared an end to the amphibious assault phase. General Buckner thereafter reported directly to Admiral Spruance. Turner departed, leaving Vice Admiral Harry W. Hill in command of the huge amphibious force still supporting the 10th Army. On 27th May, Admiral William F. Bull Hasley received relieved Spruance. With that, the 5th Fleet became the 3rd Fleet, same ships, same crews, different designation. Spruance and Turner began planning the next amphibious assault, the long-anticipated invasion of the Japanese home islands. General Shefford, appreciative of the vast amphibious resources still available on call, decided to interject tactical mobility and surprise into the sluggish campaign. In order for the 6th Marine Division to reach its intermediate objective of the Naha airfield, Shepherd first had to overwhelm the Uruku Peninsula. Shepherd could do this the hard way, attacking from the base of the peninsula and scratching seaward, or he could launch a shore-to-shore -shore amphibious assault across the estuary to catch the defenders in their flank. The Japanese expected us to do a crossing of the Kokuba, he said. I wanted to surprise them. Convincing General Geiger of the wisdom of this approach was easy. Getting General Buckner's approval took longer. Abruptly, Buckner agreed, but gave the 6th Division barely 36 hours to plan and execute a division-level amphibious assault. Lieutenant Colonel Krulak and his G3 staff relished the challenge. Scouts from Major Anthony Cold Steel Walker's 6th Reconnaissance Company stole across the estuary at night to gather intelligence on the Nishikoku beaches and the Japanese defenders. The scouts confirmed the existence on the peninsula of a cobbled force of Imperial Japanese Navy units under an old adversary. Fittingly, this final opposed amphibious landing of the war would be launched against one of the last surviving Japanese Rikunsetai commanders, Rear Admiral Minoru Ota. Admiral Ota was 54, a 1913 graduate of the Japanese Naval Academy and a veteran of Rikunsetai service from as early as 1932 in Shanghai. Ten years later, he commanded the second combined special landing force destined to assault Midway, but was thwarted by the disastrous naval defeat suffered by the Japanese. In November 1942, commanding the eighth combined special landing force in the Central Solomons, he defended by Roko against the 1st Marine Raider Regiment. By 1945, however, the Rikusentai had all but disappeared. 
and Ota commanded a ragtag outfit of several thousand coast defense and anti-aircraft gunners, aviation mechanics, and construction specialists. Undismayed, Ota breathed fire into his disparate forces, equipped them with hundreds of machine cannons from wrecked aircraft, and made them sow thousands of mines. Krulak and Shepard knew they faced a worthy opponent, but also saw they held the advantage of surprise if they could act swiftly. The final details of planning centered on problems with the division's previously dependable LVTs. 65 days of hard campaigning ashore had taken a heavy toll on the tracks and suspension systems of these assault amphibians. Nor were repairs parts available. LVTs had served in abundance on LA to land four divisions. Now the Marines had to scrape to produce enough for the assault regiments of one regiment. Worse for the planners, the first typhoon of the season was approaching, and the Navy was getting jumpy. General Shepard remained firm in his desire to execute the assault on K-Day, 4 June. Admiral Hasley backed him up. As soon as the parachute drops landed in the target zone, grateful Marines enthusiastically relieved the supplies. Often while under enemy fire, some of the drops were out of reach as they landed in territory where Japanese soldiers claimed them. Shepard considered Colonel Shapley an outstanding officer of great ability and great leadership and chose the 4th Marines to lead the assault. Shapley divided the 600-yard Nishikoku beach between 2x4 on the left and 1x4 on the right. Despite heavy rains, the assault went on schedule. The Oruku Peninsula erupted in flame and smoke under the pounding of hundreds of naval guns, artillery batteries and aerial bombs. Major Anthony's scouts seized Onoyama Island the 4th Marines swept across the estuary and the LCMs and LCIs loaded with tanks appeared from the north, from Lumi's Harbour, named after the 3rd AC Logistics Officer, Colonel Francis B. Lupi Lumis Jr., a veteran Marine aviator. The amphibious force attained complete surprise. Many of 1x4 passed off with LVTs, broke down and rode, causing uncomfortable delays, but enemy fire proved intermittent and empty LVTs from the first waves quickly returned to transfer the stranded troops. The 4th Marine advanced rapidly. Soon it became time for Colonel Voiling's 29th Marines to cross. By dark on K-Day, the 6th Division occupied 1,200 yards of the Oruku Peninsula. Admiral Ota furiously redirected his sailors to the threat from the rear. Then Colonel Roberts' 22nd Marines began advancing along the original corridor. The amphibious assault had been nigh later perfect. The typhoon came and went and the marines occupied the peninsula in force, capturing the airfield in two days. When the 1st Marine Division reached the south southwest coast north of Itoman on 7 June, Admiral Ota's force lost his chance to escape. General Shefford then orchestrated a threefold enveloping movement with his regiments and the outcome became inevitable. Admiral Ota was no ordinary opponent, however, and the Battle of Oroku was savage and lethal. Ota's 5,000 spirited sailors fought with Elan, and they were heavily armed. No similar sized force on Okinawa possessed so many automatic weapons or employed mines so effectively. The attacking marines also encountered some awesome weapons at very short range. 8-inch coast defense guns redirected inland, rail-mounted 8-inch rockets, and the enormous 322mm Spigots motors which launched in terrifying flying ash cans. On 9 June, the 4th Marines reported, 
character of opposition opposition unchanged stubborn defense of high ground by 20 mm and mg5 two days later the 29th marines reported l hill under attack from two sides another tank shot on right flank think an 8 inch gun ota could nevertheless see the end coming on 6 june he reported to naval headquarters in tokyo the troops under my command have fought gallantly in the finest tradition of the japanese navy fierce bombardments may deform the mountains of okinawa but cannot alter the loyal spirit of a man four days later ota transmitted his final message to general ushijima and committed suicide his duty done general shafford knew he had defeated a competent foe he counted the cost in his after action summary of the uruk operation during the 10 days fighting almost 5000 japanese were killed and nearly 200 taken prisoner 30 of our tanks were disabled many by mines one tank was destroyed by two direct hits from an 8 inch naval gun fired at point blank range finally 1608 marines were killed or wounded when the first marine division reached the coast near itoman it represented the first time in more than a month that the division had access to the sea this helped relieve the old breed's extended supply lines as we reached the shore we were helped a great deal by the amphibian tractors that had come down the coast with supplies said colonel snedker of the 7th marines otherwise we could not get supplies overland the more open country in the south gave general delvol the opportunity to further refine the deployment of his tank infantry teams no unit in the 10th army surpassed the first marine division's synchronization of these two supporting arms using tactical lessons painfully learned at peleliu the division never allowed its tanks to range beyond direct support of the accompanying infantry and artillery forward observers as a result the first tank battalion was the only armored unit in the battle not to lose a tank to japanese suicide squads even during the swirling close quarter phase within the wana drop general delvol the consummate artillery man valued his attachment army 4.2 inch mortar battery the 4.2s were invaluable on okinawa he said and that's why my tanks had such a good luck but good luck reflected a great deal of application we developed the tank infantry team to a fairly well in those swells backed up by our 4.2 inch mortars colonel bigfoot brown of the 11th marines took this coordination several steps further as the campaign dragged along working with lieutenant colonel jeb stewart of the first tank battalion we developed a new method of protecting tanks and reducing vulnerability to the infantry in the assault we would place an artillery observer in one of the tanks with a radio to one of the 155 mm howitzer battalions we would also use an aerial observer overhead we used 75 mm both pack and lvt as which had air burst capabilities if any jap showed anywhere we opened fire with the air burst and kept a pattern of shell fragments pattering down around the tanks lieutenant colonel james c maggie's second battalion first marines used similar tactics in a bloody but successful day long assault on hill 69 west of kozato on 10 june Maggie lost three tanks to Japanese artillery fire in the approach, but took the hill and held it throughout the inevitable counterattack that night. Beyond Hill 69 loomed Kunishi Ridge for the First Marine Division, a steep coral escarpment which totally dominated the surrounding grasslands and rice paddies. Kunishi was much higher and longer than Sugarloaf, 
equally honeycombed with enemy caves and tunnels and while it lacked the nearby equivalents of half moon and horseshoe to the rear flanks it was amply covered from behind by mezado ridge 500 yards further south remnants of veteran 32nd infantry regiment infested and defended kunishi many hidden bunkers these were the last of ushijima's organized frontline troops and they would render kunishi ridge as a deadly killing ground as marines would ever face japanese gunners readily repulsed the first infantry assaults by the 7th marines on 11th june colonel snedker looked for another way i came to realization that with the losses of my battalion suffered in experienced leadership we would never be able to capture kunishi ridge in daytime i thought a night attack might be successful snedker flew over the objective in an observation aircraft formulating his plan Night assaults by elements of the 10th Army were extremely rare in this campaign, especially Snedeker's ambitious plan of employing two battalions. General Delvaux voiced his approval. At 03:30 the next morning, Lieutenant Colonel John J. Gomley's 1 by 7 and Lieutenant Colonel Spencer S. Burgos 2 by 7 departed the combat outpost line for the Dark Ridge. By 500 hours, the lead companies of both battalions swarmed over the crest. surprising several groups of japanese calmly cooking breakfast then came the fight to stay on the ridge and expand the toehold with daylight japanese gunner continued to polax any relief columns of infantry while those marines clinging to the crest endured showers of grenades and mortar rounds as general delval put it the situation was one of the tactical oddities of this peculiar warfare we were on the ridge the japs were in it on both the forward and reverse slopes the marines on kunishi critically needed reinforcements and resupplies the growing number of wounded needed needed evacuation only the sherman medium tank had the bulk and mobility to provide relief the next several days marked the finest achievements of the first tank battalion even at the loss of 21 of its shermans to enemy fire by removing two crewmen the tankers could stuff six replacement riflemen each inside personal exchanges once atop the hill were another matter no one could stand erect without getting shot so all transactions had to take place via the escape hatch in the bottom of the tank's hull these scenes then became commonplace a tank would lurch into the beleaguered marines position on the konishi remained buttoned up while the replacement troops slithered down out of the escape hatch carrying ammo rations plasma and water then other marines would crawl under dragging their wounded comrades on ponchos and manhandle them into the small hole for those badly wounded who lacked this flexibility the only option was the dubious privilege of riding back down to safety while last to a stretcher topside behind the turret Tank drivers frequently sought to provide maximum protection to their exposed stretcher cases by backing down the entire 800-yard gauntlet. In this painstaking fashion, the tankers managed to deliver 50 fresh troops and evacuate 35 wounded men the day following the 7th Marines night attack. Encouraged by these results, General Delval ordered Colonel Mason to collect to conduct a similar night assault on the 1st Marine sector at Kunishi Ridge. This mission went to 2 by 1 who accomplished it smartly the night of 13 to 14 june 
despite inadvertent lapses of illumination fire by forgetful supporting arms. Again, the Japanese, furious at being surprised, swarmed out of their bunkers in counter-attack. <coughs> Losses mounted rapidly in Lieutenant Colonel Maggie's ranks. One company lost six of its seven officers that morning. Again, the 1st tank battalion came to the rescue, delivering reinforcements and evacuating 110 casualties by dusk. General Delvall expressed great pleasure in the success of these series of attacks. The Japs were so damn surprised, he remarked, adding, They used to counter-attack at night all the time, but they never felt we would have the audacity to go and do it to them. Colonel Yahara admitted during his interrogation that these unexpected night attacks were particularly effective, catching the Japanese forces both physically and psychologically off-guard. By 15 June, the 1st Marines had been in the division line for 12 straight days and sustained 500 casualties. The 5th Marines relieved it, including an intricate night time relief of lines by 2x5 of 2x1 on 15-16 to 16 June. The 1st Marines, back in the relative safety of Division Reserve, received this mindless regimental rejoinder the next day. When not otherwise occupied, you will bury Jap dead in your area. The battle for Kunishi Ridge continued. On 17 June, the 5th Marines assigned K 3x5 to support 2x5 on Kunushi. Private First Class Sledge approached the embattled escarpment with red. Its crest looked so much like bloody nose that my knees nearly buckled. I felt as though I were on Pele Liu and had it all to go through again. The fighting along the crest and its river slope took place at point-blank range. Too close even for the sledge's 60mm mortars. The screw then served as stretcher bureaus, extremely hazardous duty. Half his company became casualties in the next 22 hours. Extracting wounded marines from Kunushi remains a hair-raising feat. But the seriously wounded faced another half day of evacuation by field ambulance over bad roads subject to interdictive fire. Then the aviators stepped in with bright idea. Engineers cleared a rough landing strip suitable for the ubiquitous grasshopper observation aircraft north of Utoman. Hospital corpsmen began delivering some of the casualties from Kunishi and Hill 69 battles to this improbable airfield. They were clearly tenderly inserted into the waiting Piper clubs and flown back to the field hospitals in the rear. An eight-minute flight. This was the dawn of tactical air medevacs which would save so many lives in the subsequent Asian wars. In 11 days, the dauntless pilots of the Marine Observation Squadrons and flew out 641 casualties from the Itoman Strip. The 6th Marine Division joined the southern battlefield from its forcible seizure of the Uruku Peninsula. Colonel Robert's 22nd Marines became the 4th USMC Regiment to engage in the fighting for Kunoshi. The 32nd Infantry Regiment died hard, but soon the combined forces of 3rd AC had swept south, overlapped Mizado Ridge, and could smell the sea along the south coast. Near Arasaki, George Company 2x22 raised the 6th Marine Division colors on the island's southernmost point, just as they had done in April at Hedo Misaki in the farthest south, farthest north. The long neglected 22nd Marine Division finally got a meaningful role for at least one of its major comments, components in the closing weeks of the campaign. Colonel Clarence R. Wallace 
and his 8th Marine Division arrived from Saipan initially to capture two outlying islands, Iheyashima and Akunishima, to provide more early warning radar sites against the kamikazes. Wallace, in fact, commanded a sizable force, virtually a brigade, including the attached 2nd Battalion, 10th Marines, and the 2nd Amphibian Tractor Battalion. General Geiger assigned the 8th Marines to the 1st Marine Division and by 18 June they had relieved the 7th Marines and were sweeping southeastward with Geiger. Private First Class Sledge recalled their appearance on the battlefield. We scrutinized the men of the 8th Marines with that hard professional stare of old salt sizing up another outfit. Everything we saw brought forth remarks of approval. General Buckner also took an interest in observing the first combat deployment of the 8th Marines. Months earlier, he had been favorably impressed with the Colonel Wallet's outfit during an inspection visit to Saipan. Buckner went to a forward observation post on 18 June, watching the 8th Marines advance along the valley floor. Japanese gunners on the opposite ridge saw the official party and opened up. Shells struck the nearby coral outcrop, driving a lethal splinter into the general's chest. He died in 10 minutes, one of the few senior US officers to be killed in action throughout World War II. As previously arranged, General Roy Geiger assumed command. His third star became effective immediately. The 10th Army remained in capable hands. Geiger became the only Marine and the only aviator of any service to command a field army. The soldiers on Okinawa had no qualms about this. Senior Army excellence elsewhere did. Army General Joseph Stilwell received urgent orders to Okinawa. Five days later, he relieved Geiger but by then the battle was over. The Marines also lost a good commander on the 18th when the, a Japanese sniper killed Colonel Harold C. Roberts, C of the 22nd Marines, who had earned a Navy Cross serving as a Navy Corpsman with Marines in World War I. General Shepard had cautioned Roberts the previous evening about his propensity of commanding from the front. I told him the end is in sight, said Shepard. For God's sake, don't expose yourself unnecessarily. Lieutenant Colonel August C. Larson took over the 22nd Marines. When news of Buckner's death reached the headquarters of the 32nd Army in its cliffside cave near Mabuni, the staff officer rejoiced. But General Ushijima maintained silence. He had respected Buckner's distinguished military ancestry and was appreciative of the fact that both opposing commanders had once commanded their respective service academies, Ushijima at Zama, Buckner at West Point. Ushijima could also see his own end fast approaching. Indeed. 24th Coast 7th and 96th Divisions were now bearing down inexorably on the Japanese command post. On 22nd June, Generals Ushijima and Cho ordered Colonel Yahara and others to save themselves in order to tell army stories to headquarters, then conducted ritual suicide. General Geiger announced the end of organized resistance on Okinawa the same day. True to form, a final Kikusui attack struck the fleet that night and sharp fighting broke out on the 22nd. End of third, Geiger broke out the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing band and ran up the American flag at 10th Army headquarters. The long battle had finally run its course. You were listening to the final campaign, Marines in the Victory on Okinawa. Thank you for listening to The Tales of War.